You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 20th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. The jostling to succeed Liz Truss as Prime Minister of the UK commences. Saudi-US relations deteriorate further, but is that a bad thing? And a big day for anyone who had Iran declares war on Britney Spears on their 2022 bingo card. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Daniela Pellet and Sir William Patey, will discuss the most ludicrous day in British politics since yesterday and the day's other big stories. Plus, we'll hear from FT political editor George Parker and bring you Henry Rhys Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Daniela Pellet, Managing Editor at the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and by Sir William Patey, former UK Ambassador to Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Sudan and Afghanistan, if not necessarily in that order. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Uh, and William, especially welcome back. It's It's been a while. Old school listeners to Midori House, which used to go out at this hour, may recall hearing your voice. What are you up to these days? Well, I'm still uh, working for Control Risk international affairs advisor i chair the turquoise mountain trust foundation which is uh, uh, keeping uh, heritage and crafts alive in afghanistan and myanmar saudi arabia and jordan so i'm s- still messing around in my old stamping grounds uh daniela can you compete with that um, i've got a turquoise mountain vase on my perfect mantelpiece at home quality yeah i'm also contributing to (laughs) maintaining the culture and heritage of afghanistan i don't have one and now i feel left out uh but we will start today's show proper here in the uk which is currently advertising for a prime minister liz truss resigned her way into the history books a few hours ago her 44 days immortalizing her as the country's shortest serving prime minister by some distance although things being as they are you would have to reckon whoever ends up succeeding her could give even this formidable new mark a shake we are joined first of all by george parker political editor at the financial times um george i I know it's probably hard to identify a single moment over the last 48 hours let alone 44 days but was there a particular moment at which this stopped being merely likely and became actually inevitable yes i mean i I think it was really the, the chaotic scenes of yesterday which were probably the most shambolic it was probably the most shambolic episode I can remember in British politics where party discipline broke down, the Home Secretary was forced to resign. But in the middle of it, there was a crucial meeting of the backbench Conservative 1922 committee, which basically acts as like shop stewards for party opinion. And they had a meeting in a secret location in the Palace of Westminster, and they concluded almost unanimously that this trust would have to go. Um, and then this morning, Graham Brady, the chair of that body, went in the back door of number 10 Downing Street to deliver that message that basically her time was up. And I think that probably was the key moment and the moment that saw that precipitated her downfall, you know, literally an hour and a half later. Uh, now, we have, within the last half an hour or so, heard from the 1922 committee about how her successor is going to be chosen. What have they told us? Well, that's right. So there's going to be a, a contest um, intended to deliver a new prime minister for Britain by next Friday at the latest, so an incredibly short timetable. 
and it's entirely possible it could, it could happen earlier. So to enter the, the race, you have to have the support of 100 out of the 357 Conservative MPs. That means there'll be a maximum of three candidates uh, on the ballot paper by Monday night. Now, it's entirely possible that only one candidate gets over 100 nominations and therefore would immediately be crowned Britain's new Prime Minister on Monday. And if you look through the list of potential candidates, you've got people like Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor, and Penny Mordaunt, who also stood for the leadership during the summer. The person with the most developed leadership campaign structure by a mile is Rishi Sunak. And some people are speculating that he might be the only candidate, if it's a crowded field, to actually top the 100-vote threshold. Now, one of the reasons they had such a large field last time they tried this was that they went into it with a 20-vote threshold, which basically meant that any Yahoo who fancied their chances should could get on the ballot. Is it, is it overthinking it to suspect that the reason they have jacked it up to 100 this time, apart from you know, the considerations of getting this done as quickly as possible and sparing the Tory party any further embarrassment, that they are trying to keep a certain Boris Johnson out of it. I think there's an element of that for sure. Um, and I think I would be very surprised if Boris Johnson um, surpasses that 100-vote threshold. Um, you can probably name a dozen or so diehard Boris Johnson supporters in the parliamentary party, but getting to 100, I think, is very unlikely. So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is they want to make sure the contest is quick, that there are very few candidates. And it's entirely possible that the way the contest is structured, that if one person emerges as the winner early on in the contest, like on Monday night, that they don't have to go through the rigmarole of consulting the members, which um, is something that the Tory party is rather reluctant to do, having seen this sort of protracted two-month um, contest over the summer, which ultimately, of course, led to the members choosing Liz Truss as their, the Prime Minister. George Parker at the Financial Times, thank you very much for joining us. Well, let's bring in our panellists now, Daniela Pellard and Sir William Patey. Um, William, first of all, we probably won't get a huge window of opportunity to consider um, Liz Truss's place in the historical pantheon, but I'm just wondering where you think the mini-budget of last month in particular, which is where the wheels started to fall off, if you think of the, the pantheon of unforced prime ministerial errors, and you think of the greats like Suez or Brexit, where does this rank? Well, I was just talking with Daniela before we came in. She's the worst prime minister we've ever had, in my view. I already had a top three, <laughs> uh, and she has surpassed them. I mean, to to have explained to you in, in the election hustings what the consequences of your policy would be by your opponent and then to have the, that actually realised uh, is unbelievable. You're either very stupid uh, or you are inclined to believe fantasy. So there's a or kind a of, combination. Yeah, a combination. Yeah, why, why not both? Yeah, there's a, There was a kind of, looking back five or six weeks, there's a kind of inevitability about this. Uh, Daniela, are you surprised that it has all unravelled so quickly? I'm not sure very many things can um, surprise me um, anymore. It was clear from a little while ago that it was about to unravel and perhaps had not um, um, the Queen passed away so early on, uh, in the premiership, it might have unravelled a good deal I, I sooner. I mean, it, it is arguable, in fact, that Liz Truss's premiership was actually even effectively shorter than it looked, because for the reason you just point out, really nothing much got done for the first two weeks of it. Exactly, and we're quite lucky for her that, that, that it didn't, really. And then as soon as she started making things happen, things started going very, very wrong. Um, William, 
George Parker was just outlining the way forward as the Tory party sees it. There is, of course, another option, and it is the one that the Tories, for very obvious reasons, are extremely keen to avoid, which is a general election. But if they were thinking at all of the national interest at this point, should they call one? Or can they be thinking, well, let's engineer someone into the job who says, look, let's just get through this winter and then we'll do that? Well, there's a little bit of me that says, you know, we really do need a general election so that we can have a degree of stability going forward. But if, say, Rishi Sunak was to become a prime minister, mm. at least he would be following the same policies that Jeremy Hunt has just announced. So you, mm. you'd have a prime minister and a chancellor uh, in lockstep on on what I'd call pragmatic, sensible economics that might have a chance of going through to the next election. But there is a there is a uh, there's a sort of democratic urge that says really the people ought to have a, a, a say in this. 160,000 conservatives got their say. Um, it's probably time for the people. But the problem is then you're going to have three or four months of uncertainty at a time when uh, we've seen what uncertainty causes in the markets and the impact that has on individuals. Daniela, on the subject of what the people bless them want though however it, it has been apparent and this is not just in the case in the united kingdom we've seen this across the entire democratic world it is clear that what a quite large number of the people uh, or what they want is government by chaos government by clownery they want politics to be dramatic and entertaining and exciting do you perceive at this crucial juncture, any dwindling in the appetite for that? Do you think perhaps there is a plurality of people out there who would take at least a few months of being governed by quite dull, orthodox people? I'm not sure that happens to a, a, a huge de degree here. I think we're quite generally quite happy to sort of pootle along and then um, occasionally a small amount of charisma in politics. And I think after the Boris Johnson... Can I call it an experiment now after the Boris Johnson era? I mean, that was that was all charisma, really. And I think we're quite happy to... Well, I think we would be quite happy to, to pootle along. I mean, the issue with um, a general election, of course, it would create instability. But mm. then changes of government always create instability. And that's generally seen as a... a as, as a good thing. And I think that the whole of this sorry episode has really degraded the view of democracy and the, and the, the level of engagement that especially young people feel they have in the politics of this country. And as uh, George Parker put it, the idea of crowning uh, Rishi Sunak as prime minister. I mean, I think that's, uh, it's not accidental. He said, I think that's the perception. And if you don't feel a sense of engagement with the politics of your, of your country and you think, well, we have to wait two years for another general election um so i would support a general election but since i'm not a tory voter i would of course <laughs> say that um william there has of course and will be for a few days an amount of, of pointing and laughing by british people at the general state of their politics which i do think is quite a healthy instinct but uh, we are of course especially globally uh, living in extremely serious times uh, and in extremely serious times the United Kingdom is one of those countries that the world does still look to to provide some sort of lead. And has the circus of the last few months in particular, do you think, thinking back on your experience as an ambassador, 
is the UK diminished on the world stage? Would it now be taken less seriously than it was a year, two years, five years ago? Certainly currently. I think people, our allies, are in despair at mm. uh, our current state of politics. If I was a British diplomat in trying to promote our interests overseas <laughs> these days, I would find it very difficult to do so. Uh, uh, advocating good government, stable politics, respect for institutions, <laughs> all those things that were standard and people used to listen to you. They might not have taken your advice. But, you know, a, Brit a British ambassador trying to promote that sort of uh, agenda these days will be laughed at. So there is whether it's long-term or not, I don't know. Mm. I think we can recover. We're still a big economy. We've still got a serious military. We've still got good alliances. Um, you know, this is not irretrievable, but we are certainly a bit of a laughing stock at the moment. Well, let's now take a look at that world stage from which the United Kingdom has momentarily excused itself. In Saudi Arabia, a citizen has been sentenced to 16 years in prison for issuing a series of tweets critical of the abundantly criticism-worthy regime that runs the place. This is regrettably not that unusual, but a complicating factor here is that 72-year-old Saad Ibrahim al-Mahdi is also a citizen of the United States. He was visiting Saudi Arabia on holiday and was apprehended over social media postings dating some years back. The sentence has been issued at a time during which relations between Riyadh and Washington DC are already at a lowish ebb. Um, William, I want to come to the, the diplomatic relations relations ramifications of this shortly, but first I, I just wanted to draw upon your experience of having lived and worked in Saudi Arabia. Um, this sentence is pretty obviously absolutely outrageous, but would it be seen as such by most Saudis? Um, well, I think Saudis are quite used to now uh, quite uh, serious sentences or long sentences for what we would regard as relatively trivial matters. So uh, women protesting over driving just before... Uh, the authorities changed mm. the rules to allow women to drive, these women were sentenced to years in prison. So this is not unusual in Saudi Arabia, um, the clamping down on uh, on dissent uh, and uh, and social media. And he's not the first. A, a, a Saudi woman uh, was arrested for retweeting uh, something and she only has 2,000 followers. So it's pretty normal mm. uh, in the sense that uh, anything that is uh, con construed as dissent is not tolerated in Saudi Arabia. Saudis are used to that and act accordingly. But, but do you think they... I mean, there's a difference between being used to something and actually approving of it. Well, I don't think they approve of it, um, uh, but they're not going to do anything about it because it's a balance. If you're a Saudi, you're balancing the recent liberalisation of social and economic liberalisation. So young Saudis are quite happy with what's going on in Saudi Arabia at the moment because it's a big contrast to their previous mm. lives when they couldn't go out, they couldn't mix socially. Women are now working and driving, uh, mixing with their male colleagues. There's a sort of normality about life in Saudi Arabia that was absent one or two years ago. So I think most young Saudis are thinking about that. Saudi Arabia wasn't as far as the majority concerned, a highly politicised society. Mm. Uh, certainly when I was there, people knew that it wasn't a good idea to talk politics. Uh, and that, that's nothing new.
I mean, Daniela, as, as William points out, this sort of stuff is not unusual. And there was a, a related case uh, earlier this year, uh, Salma Al-Shahab, who was a student here at Leeds University in the UK, though not a British citizen, um, she went back to Saudi Arabia and got 34 years uh, for things she had posted on Twitter. So th- the question, well, a question uh, that arises is, are the Saudis really actually this thin-skinned or is this just a means of terrorising the population? Well, I think it sends a very strong message. Um, I mean, I haven't lived or worked in Saudi Arabia. My main contact has been working with, uh, as a journalist, with Saudi human rights activists mm. or um, a, a, and writers. And what was made very clear to me always was, well, there's a certain distance that you can go and there's a certain level of criticism which you can expect Western support, but really not anything particularly political. You could, you could. There's, there's space for a little bit of campaigning. There's space for some support on women's rights and so on, but you know that that's that the 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 space was small, and perhaps shrinking now. I mean, it's it's really quite brutal to see the the level of uh, or the lack of support that a dual citizen, US dual US and, and Saudi citizen can get. Um, for a prison sentence, which is likely to keep him in, in prison or in uh, under house arrest for the rest of his life. Um, that shows how little room for manoeuvre there is. A deal will be done on that. I don't expect him to spend the rest of his life in prison. I expect the Americans will be actively uh, negotiating his release at this very moment. Uh, and it will become very transactional. There, That is one of the issues about the Saudi-American relationship. It's become very transactional. Are you- Again, going back to your experience of actually working there as as a diplomat, though, how do you see the balance of power in that relationship? Does the West actually have any leverage over the Saudis at all? Because the the way I think it's understood by most people is that everybody knows the Saudis are awful, but we put up with it because they have oil. Is is it as actually as simple as that? No, it's much more complicated than that, because not just oil, so. it's, we have a legitimate economic mm. and security interests, and the Saudis have security interests. Traditionally, they've relied on the United States and the, uh, and the European uh, countries for their security. You know, They live in a troubled neighbourhood, and that's been part of the deal. That changed in many ways under Obama. Uh, Obama's kind of withdrawal from the, uh, from the Middle East led the Saudis to venture out on their own and to fend for themselves, and then that was exacerbated by Trump. And then when Biden fell out with the Saudi uh, administration over the Khashoggi affair, um, the you know the Saudis have begun to think that the relationship with the US is not as ironclad as it used to be, and therefore they're venturing out on their own. But ultimately, they are dependent on. Uh, the US and Europe for arms supplies and for the security. So there's a limit to how far they can go. And equally, the US doesn't want to see a destabilised Saudi Arabia Mm. in the Gulf because of the implications for that. So at the end of the day, both sides are going to wake up and realise that actually Iran is still the problem for both of them. Um, But at the moment, they seem to be poking each other uh, in ways that are very unproductive for both. Uh, Daniela, uh, William there mentions Jamaica Khashoggi, which does now appear to be a case of Saudi Arabia having literally uh, gotten away with murder. Could or should that have been a, a sort of breaking point in that in that relationship that, that William was describing? 
Well, again, as a, as a journalist and as a, as a liberal... And as, a, as a journalist, I too am somewhat biased in my view <laughs> of this case, yes. Yeah, and as a woman and as a, def- a supporter of human rights, it would be great to say, yes, that should have been it, that should have been it, then the Saudis should be um, taught a lesson and be made to behave in a completely different way. But it, in terms of real politic, that's not how it... Um, uh, that's not how it, how it happens. And uh, I'm inclined to agree that this is a spat... Um, the the Americans have made all kinds of threats about the suspending arms sales for a year and, and so on. But both sides need each other. And it isn't just about oil. It's also about uh, security as well. I come across stories in, in very unreliable media, like Chinese state media, for instance, um, about Saudi Arabia joining BRICS. You know, Absalom having a, a complete pivot away from its, mm. um, its Western trajectory, which seems... But it seems highly implausible. But, you know, these are the kind of messages, this kind of disinformation and misinformation that um, is quite comfortable for um, certain global actors, because I think it is that much of a of a, of a black and white choice, um, which sphere of influence Saudi Arabia is going to remain in. And I think leaping forth to, to chum up with with Russia and, and China um, is a little bit of a leap of the imagination. Just a final thought on this one, William. The Europe in particular, I think, has spent the last eight months learning a bit of a lesson about the folly of hoping that if we buy enough of this dislikable regime's oil, they'll turn into reasonable people eventually. Are we still making that mistake with Saudi Arabia? Is this ever actually going to change? Will we live long enough, basically, to see Saudi Arabia haul itself into, I don't know, about the mid-20th century or so? Well, I mean, in fairness to them, they are hauling themselves into the mid-20th century in many ways in terms of social and economic uh, mores uh, and the, the impact that will have. But the, the politics isn't going to change any time soon. If anything, the politics has got much more concentrated and power is much more in the hands of one man than it has ever been. One, um, one disconcertingly young man who might be with yeah, us for a while. who'll be there for quite some time. Mm. So, you know, but, you know, we've got used to dealing with dictators and autocrats all over the world. It's nothing new about Saudi Arabia. I think we're less dependent on Saudi oil than we, mm. we've ever been. It's much more about the general balance, security balance, economic balance. It's an important country. I agree with Daniela. I don't think the Saudis are about to flip towards the uh, uh, towards the Russians and the Chinese, mainly because the biggest threat to Saudi Arabia is uh, Iran, and neither the Russians nor the Chinese are going to come to their rescue if Iran was to attack them. So one day they're going to wake up and discover that, you know, actually their old allies are the only allies they've got. Um, the question is, you know, uh, how long will that take? I mean, I, I actually think the the current rift has got less to do with the arrest of the the, the, the uh, US Saudi national than to do with the oil. The fact that mm. this, the Saudis have um, gone along with the Russians, OPEC plus Russia, and increased uh, decreased production to keep prices high. That's been taken by the Americans as a personal slight. I don't think it is. I think it's Saudi Arabia pursuing its economic interests. But they've got a lot of explaining to do in Washington. Sir William Patey and Daniela Pellard, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you both later in the show. But it's time now for our letter from New York City. And this week, Henry Rees Sheridan sizes up an independent candidate running for Congress. A man wearing a navy suit stands behind a woman. She's kneeling on the edge of a bed. His hands are placed on her upper arms. 
He seems to be in the act of disrobing her, removing a sort of light grey garment she's wearing over a scarlet slip. The man's attention is focused on her, but the woman is smiling at the camera. The man is middle-aged and entirely bald. The woman is visibly younger and has hair on her head. The room they're in appears to be a hotel suite. Most of the floor space is taken up by the big bed. There's an armchair in the space between the bed and the wall, a location no one would ever choose to sit. On the wall itself, there are two works of completely shit art, displayed as unframed canvases. The image I'm describing is a still from a pornographic film. It's been featured on several news sites this week. It's doing the rounds not because of its artistic merits or demerits, but because the male actor is a public figure. His name is Mike Itkiss. Itkiss's career has included stints in the US Army as a cybersecurity specialist and in the financial services sector. Now he's running to represent New York Congressional District 12 as an independent candidate. The porn film he stars in is called Bucket List Bonanza. Its production and release are not an accident. Itkiss says he made the film to raise awareness of one of his main areas of political concern, the promotion of what he calls sex-positive laws. Itkiss advocates for several specific policies under this banner. They include the relatively well-known position of decriminalising and legalising sex work, and also more esoteric recommendations, such as men should not be required to support biological children without prior agreement. If I would just talk about it, it wouldn't demonstrate my commitment to the issue, Itkiss told the news website City and State. He goes on to say that recording and releasing the sex tape was, quote, a huge learning experience, and it actually influenced items on my platform, unquote. I'm aware of a vigilance in myself to the possible ulterior motives of Itkiss. I think that's reasonable in the case of a male politician who has sought to prove his commitment to sex-positive governance by having sex on camera with a much younger woman. But in the few interviews with Itkiss that I could find out there, he seems to be serious about the politics of it. I'm a single adult in New York City, he told New York Weekly. The policies we have now are geared towards traditional family structures, but America is and has been moving away from what's considered traditional. He goes on, The church's ultra-conservative approach to sexuality drives a lot of policies, both in the military and civilian life, and both favouring married couples over single individuals. The issues Itkiss highlights seem genuinely important, even if I don't agree on the details of his legislative recommendations. In fact, I wanted to spend this segment taking a closer look at them, but I couldn't do it because I couldn't stop thinking about the title of his sex tape. Bucket List Bonanza. Bucket List Bonanza. What does it mean? What could it mean? More specifically, what is it Kiss ticking off of his bucket list by making the film? Is it specific sex acts he engages in on camera? Is it making a porn film itself? 
Is it the more esoteric act of making a porn film specifically to promote a political campaign? Or does the title of the film refer to It Kisses' broader goals? Perhaps running for office itself is what he's ticking off his bucket list, and the title is more of a celebration of that. Having not watched the film, it's impossible for me to say for certain. But whatever the truth is, I find the fact of a man, in the autumn of his life, releasing a sex tape starring himself, called Bucket List Bonanza, as a strategic move in a political race in which he's doomed to be smashed by his Democratic opponent, Jerry Nadler, unbearably moving. It's getting darker much earlier now, colder as well. We need to take the air conditioners out of the windows, put them in storage for another year. And that was our New York radio correspondent, Henry Ree Sheridan, with the string quartet that he lives with. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Earlier this week, at least I think it was earlier this week, this has been one of those interregnums in which time has lost all meaning, we had cause on this programme to discuss the vexed question of the restitution of historical artefacts, and our panel was broadly of the view that, yes, by and large, send them back. The fates have conspired to furnish something of a counterpoint, asking us to consider Consider what should be done re-astonishing treasures whose safety is in doubt where they are. Specifically, a trove of amazing rock carvings and genuinely, when you're done listening to this, go and look up the photographs, uh, dating back to the reign of the Assyrian king Sennacherib, which have been disinterred by archaeologists in Mosul. They are about 2,700 years old. Um, William, first of all, th- these have been found via the reconstruction of the Mashki Gate uh, in Mosul, which was bulldozed by ISIS, and that right there kind of illustrates the potential problem, doesn't it? Well, it does, because ISIS and the Taliban before them have a track record of uh, trashing uh, pre-Islamic uh, treasures. We saw what happened to Palmyra mm. in uh, in Syria and the, the, the Buddhas in Bamiyan, which uh, I, I visited I visited the gaping holes, which is a tragedy. But um, this is one of those cases where history is, is on our side. I think that the, the ISIS were within about 50 miles of uh, of the, the these sites when the, uh, the the archaeologists left so I think they're safe as long as the Salafists Isis and the Taliban are kept at bay so they're not they're not at any risk from any faction within Iraq at the moment but it does uh, uh, there is a fragility if, mm. if, if certain groups uh, get get uh, into power uh, and access to them uh, Daniela, do we do enough to protect stuff? And I realise that opens up several other cans of worms you know, along the lines of, for example, the destruction of the Buddhas of Bamiyan attracted far more media attention than the immiserating of any number of actual Afghan people for any amount of time ever did. But do we do enough or should we just take the more Zen view that, look, you know, nothing lasts forever, things are going to happen? Well, I mean, the option really isn't rounding up all the important things in the world and like sending them to the British Museum. And we've tried that. Um, <laughs> we did quite well, you know, or the, the Germans did very well in the Pergamon Museum in Indeed Berlin. So. Um, yeah, um, the culture, who does culture belong to and who does heritage belong to? I mean, you could argue that it belongs to the people who live in the country and whose heritage and culture it is. And to some degree, we share it as a, uh, you know, as UNESCO. Um, shows you we have global heritage sites but i think you'll find that the people of mosul are quite keen and quite proud on um 
their you know, Nineveh being nearby and their their history and, the, and their culture. And um, it's down to them to look after it. And I think they're more than capable. And, and sadly and unfortunately, the history of, of culture is also the history of destruction and mm. the history of, of empire and the history of, of war. And although we can take steps to protect cultural artifacts now um i think we're deluding ourselves if we think that this is right this is this is where history stops and from now on everything is preserved um william does this does this come up among diplomats i mean specifically is this a is this an example of somewhere where a country like the united kingdom which obviously has a somewhat vexed relationship with iraq at all sorts of levels and presumably you need to be a bit careful about being seen to throw your weight around in iraq as a representative of the united kingdom but is this a place where a relatively secure and fortunate and wealthy country like the united kingdom can say look we can help here we can figure out how to protect this we can provide funds we can provide expertise well we've done that in mm. part i mean before saddam hussein came in the the, the british iraqi uh, institute has has, has a long distinguished history of helping the Iraqis preserve uh, their uh, their their history. Indeed, you know, even in modern times, a lot of the artifacts that were stolen from Iraq during the turmoil, a lot of them have been identified and returned to Iraq. So we are doing that. We should do that. We should certainly be helping the Iraqis preserve uh, their their history and culture. Um, uh, quite right in place, uh, and I think the Iraqis do have a a strong sense of their own history going back mm. to Assyrian times and even he, he, even old Saddam Hussein when he basically desecrated Babylon by building on the top of it was at least trying to acknowledge that heritage and uh, uh, maybe he could have had better archaeological advice uh, at the time <laughs> but you know his intention was certainly not to to deny the heritage and finally going back to Saudi Arabia they are now beginning to acknowledge their pre-Islamic heritage so things like the Nabataean civilizations mm. in, in, in Saudi Arabia, Petra and uh, Madain Saleh in Saudi Arabia are, uh, are mirror images where there's a lot we can do to help countries preserve their culture. Indeed, I mentioned Turquoise Mountain Trust. That is part of our raison d'etre is to help countries uh, preserve their, their culture and their heritage. Just a final thought on this one, Daniela, and this is not necessarily me saying what I think because I don't really know what I think, but is there an argument that with something as ancient as this, uh, built by a civilization, the Assyrian civilization, which is, is not still a state of any kind, though I do still have somewhere the very nice purple lapel badge I was given in Baghdad shortly after the invasion in 2003 by a nascent Assyrian liberation organization. Don't know How what. How did they do? Uh, I, I don't know. Actually, it's, I haven't thought about them in years. Don't know what became of them. It's a nice badge, though. Um, but does there become a point at which you, you have to regard or should regard any artefact as like, seriously, this is, this is humanity's common heritage. This belongs to all of us. There should, even if it's left in situ, there should be a global effort to protect it. I would like very much to think that it belongs to, to all of us. And, uh, you know... It, it's a preservation of culture and, and it's like the preservation of our environment. You know, we all lose if it's not done. But um, definitely it's <laughs> to, to ignore modern uh, concepts of sovereignty and, uh, and national uh, symbols um, is, sets an extremely bad precedent. I mean, I've, I've, seen, I've been to um, archaeological exhibitions in Israel, for instance, in Jerusalem, which seem to be entirely um, populated by material from the West Bank, mm. Gaza, um, which 
again, in terms of a heritage, in terms of, of culture, is that really justified to you know, whose heritage is it? And do we do you have a, um, a territory with disputes over who owns it and whose heritage it is? Um, merely transporting uh, pieces of, of culture and heritage um, is just not a good idea. But that's the point of UNESCO. UNESCO's mm. there, that UN body, to preserve world culture and world heritage. So, you know, Britain pulled out of UNESCO for a little while, another sad and shameful period in our history, <laughs> but we're now members again, and that's that's the that's the international body that's there to help and protect these uh, world heritage uh, sites. Well, finally on today's show, and sticking sort of with the subject of humanity's common culture, uh, the absolutely sane and normal people running Iran state news operations have spent much of the last day or two inveighing against Britney Spears. The Oops I Did It Again hitmaker, whose husband was born in Iran, made via social media some mild remarks in support of those Iranian women who would prefer not to wear a scarf as and when they don't feel like so doing. Since which, Iranian state news agency IRNA has been grimly dredging up Spears' public difficulties with mental health, as if to imply that only a lunatic could believe that a government should maybe not employ grown men to beat up women for flashing an untoward quantity of hair. Um, Daniela, is it possible to explain at all how Iran thinks it looks good doing any of this? Well, I think, I mean, social media is the uh, <laughs> is the reason. Isn't that what everyone does? They, 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 they tweet um, stupid sort of gotchas and, and memes and they score points um, in that way and it doesn't really have any relation with the real world, but it's a, it's a different battle. They're fighting a different battle. Um, and... Um, yeah, I mean, did did uh, Britney Spears think that she's going to be saving, you know, the the, the beleaguered women of Iran and um, making the striking the crucial blow for, um, for for equality by sending a few tweets? It's social media. It's a completely different uh, universe. Well, indeed, just today, in fact, we saw Ru- former Russian President and Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev jeering at Liz Truss for being outlasted <laughs> by. A lettuce, uh, a competition that the Daily Star had set up, uh, little realising that, you know, he very much was the lettuce himself uh, in his relationship with uh, Vladimir Putin. But should we assume then, William, that the Iranian state news agency is doing this for a domestic audience, that they are somehow communicating, look, we are standing up for the values of the Islamic Republic by harassing this woman who had some mildly amusing pop hits about 24 years ago? Well, blunderbuss and shooting yourself in the foot come to mind. (laughs) All they've done is drawn attention to it, to a much wider audience. Britney Spears has lots of fans. We saw them all uh, demonstrating against her conservatorship. So she she reaches out to quite a large audience. So the Iranians attacking her just looks like they've increased the number of people who now know that the Iranians are repressing the women by insisting they wear the hijab against their own personal wishes. So it strikes me as an own goal. Uh, And just finally on this, Daniela, and finally on today's show, before we get to lofty about this is this actually really any dafter than any of the culture war nonsense that gets trafficked day in day out across social media and similar official channels here in the united kingdom and the united states um it's no more dafter but there's just a lot more at stake Indeed so. Daniela Pellet and Sir William Patey, thank you both very much for joining us. Thanks also to Henry Rees Sheridan and George Parker. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. The show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.